0: Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin and global finance podcast with me, Jason Dean in partnership with Luno Wallet Exchange and Siberian Mine. Here we talk about all things Bitcoin and all things financial and try and make some sense of them. If you'd like to get in touch with me, then I'll give you some contact details at the end of this podcast. Or if you're listening on YouTube, just leave a comment below. Now, before we get stuck into today's somehow reassuring subject, I just wanted to acknowledge Luno's support in helping make this podcast possible. Luno is one of the world's leading cryptocurrency wallets and exchanges, trusted now by over 7 million customers. Now, it was only 5 million when I started talking about them last year. They now operate in 40 countries, and it's no secret if you follow me on Twitter, Medium, or voice.com that I've been recommending them for quite some time. And to be honest, I love recommending Luno for people who might be new to the world of cryptocurrency because it's very pretty, it's very intuitive and it's an easy and secure way to buy, exchange or hold Bitcoin and other cryptos such as Litecoin, XRP, Ethereum and others. Even better, Crypto Compare's Exchange benchmark report that came out on the 16th of February this year, confirm Luno as one of only six AA rated exchanges in the world. That's the very top score. So simply go to Luno.com for the details or download the app, that's Luno L U N O on your Android or Apple device. In fact, if you do that, And you're over 18, based in the UK or Europe, I'm going to give you £10 worth of Bitcoin, courtesy of Luno, absolutely free to get you started on the app. And the way I'll be doing that is by giving you a code at the end of this podcast, which will credit your account instantly when you enter it. It is a gift. The app is free. There's no monthly charges. There's no obligation to buy anything else. This is part of a campaign by Luno to introduce new people to Bitcoin and the idea is to get around that initial hurdle we all have about using Bitcoin for the first time. I'm sure you know what I mean when you get paranoid about doing something wrong and losing your money when you first start using it so luno gives you this bit of bitcoin so that you can experiment with confidence before you commit your own funds if you ever decide to do that so you can keep it sell it move it to the savings account to get interest give it to charity whatever you want it's yours Now, secondly, as many of you know, I'm a veteran Bitcoin miner with an operation that runs entirely on excess renewable energy, which has the added advantage of being very cheap, and that's based over in Siberia. Now, I've been doing a lot of podcasts and interviews about Bitcoin and the environment recently, and people have been asking me how to get into sustainable Bitcoin mining, because it all seems so complicated when you first look at it. But actually, it's very, very easy to reap the rewards of mining these days. And of course, as you've probably heard, it's very profitable at the moment. So I'm pleased to say that in partnership with Siberia Mine, I am now able to offer a very attractive referral arrangement that you can take advantage of here and now if you want. The link and details are in the program notes. All you do is sign up for an account to start with and you can spend some time getting to know the setup before you jump in. But in the meantime, let's get on with today's podcast, where we'll be looking at the reasons why we already know for certain that Bitcoin can never be shut down by any government anywhere in the world. Now obviously I do acknowledge that this seems to be a very bold claim because this is often cited as a reason that Bitcoin can't succeed, specifically the point that they, inverted commas, will simply shut it down. Now we can assume really that they is a faceless collection of powers represented in various forms uh, and that would include governments, regulators or perhaps even monarchies in certain states. But the reality is that we're already too late for that, in fact it was probably too late within a few months of Bitcoin's birth back in 2009 when the practical applications rapidly became clear. So at that point, even though the entire ecosystem was tiny, it was already widely adopted enough to make closing it down extremely difficult should the powers that be have been remotely interested in doing so, which of course we know they weren't. So, as a result, that window of opportunity has now closed forever. Bitcoin can now not be stopped by any legislative power on Earth, barring, of course, an unprecedented joining of global forces by all governments from all sovereign states agreeing a single global course of action in the very near future. The trouble is, we can't even collectively agree to stop doing activities that will actually kill us, such as pumping highly toxic waste into the atmosphere, or flattening entire rainforests, so the chances of us coming together and communicating sensibly on global monetary policy is about as far from likely as it could possibly be. And anyway, it's irrelevant, we already know it's impossible, because we actually have a cast-iron precedent. Now, you've probably heard of the Pirate Bay, and you may have used the Pirate Bay. I'm not here to judge, but let's certainly skip the part where you pretend you don't know what it is. Even so, it's useful to look at a definition of that project. Now, Wikipedia has one, Uh, It's quite good, but it is also a bit of a mouthful. I'm going to quote it for you now. The Pirate Bay is an online index of digital content of entertainment media and software, allowing visitors to search, download and contribute magnet links and torrent files, which facilitate peer-to-peer file sharing among users of the BitTorrent protocol. Now, as you can tell from the way I said that, because I was actually reading that part out, I actually stumbled on some of the words there because it is that much of a mouthful. So let's translate that into something that's a little bit more realistic. Basically, it's a place where you can download any digital content you like anonymously and relatively safely, entirely on a decentralized peer-to-peer basis and entirely for free. Oh, and did I mention it was all completely illegal? The fact that this site is so blatantly illegal, even by the most basic application of any copyright law in any jurisdiction in the world, and yet still operates so reliably is really quite the achievement. In fact, the Pirate Bay has now operated for almost two decades, thereby outlasting other file-sharing sites, which is what they call them, even though it's a little bit deceptive. I think, such as Napster, Kazaa, LimeWire, Kickass Torrents, and Extra Torrents. All of these guys were successfully hunted down and entirely decimated by law enforcement officials. So how can it be that a site with millions of users globally, all of whom are actively avoiding paying any sort of royalties to the content creators, can continue to operate apparently outside of the law? Because in this case, governments are actually incentivized to shut it down as fast as possible, at least to some degree. I mean, just think of all that lovely taxable income that isn't being generated as a result of the actions of the Pirate Bay. And the scale of it is enormous. Because it's easy to think that downloading, I don't know, Series 7 of Games of Thrones probably wouldn't have much of an impact, but it does when it's downloaded illegally a billion times, as in fact did happen in 2017. In fact, in 2019, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Innovation Policy Center reported its estimate that there are 26.6 billion illegal views of movies produced by U.S. organizations and 126.7 billion views of TV episodes made by U.S. producers every single year on average. Now, when you consider there's less than 8 billion people on the planet at the moment, it goes to show that People are using this service certainly more than once. So that means there must be a knock-on effect on producers and distributors. And in actual fact, it's thought to be responsible for the loss of 230,000 American jobs and a GDP reduction of approximately $47.5 billion. And remember, that's just the US industry. But... Even despite all of this, the Pirate Bay continues entirely untroubled, surviving countless full frontal assaults of industry heavyweights armed with huge sums of money and the very best lawyers that money can buy. And all of those lawyers are backed by both the letter of the law and the government-sanctioned power of enforcement agencies. So again, how have they been able to do this? And really the answer lies in the way the Pirate Bay was forced to evolve after it was first created back in 2003. And it really is quite the story. You see, the Pirate Bay was just as much a statement of defiance to the powers that be as much as it was actually a physical site, if you like, right from the start. And it was the brainchild of three Swedish men. Now... I should point out I'm obviously going to give you these guys names now and I'm clearly not Swedish. So in an attempt to try and get this right, I actually Googled how to pronounce these names and Google came back and said it didn't know how to pronounce these names, didn't recognize these names. So on the basis that Google doesn't know it, I'm going to give it a go. But if you are Swedish, I apologize in advance. Now, the names of these men were Friedrich Nisch, Gottfried Svatholm and Peter Sunday, who were all founding members of the anti-copyright group known as Pirit Byron. I think it's how you pronounce it, but it basically was an organisation which was against copyright laws. Now originally it was based in a large data centre in Stockholm, without any attempt to hide what they were doing, and it wasn't until May the 31st 2006 that the law finally arrived in the form of a swarm of agents with appropriate paperwork to peacefully shut it all down. The Pirate Bay was finished, or so the authorities thought. However, before being arrested, one of the men, Neige, took a few minutes to back up the entire website remotely in a move that would ultimately guarantee the Pirate Bay's rebirth just 48 hours later, much to the annoyance of those very same agents and almost certainly a whole load of others but by all accounts the three men were entirely unfazed by their arrest and were confident they wouldn't be convicted they initially appeared to be correct actually when over half the charges were quickly dropped due to lack of evidence or other jurisdictional issues Now, while they were waiting for trial, the men thought about how they could continue their work and looked at various options up to and including buying an entire island in international waters that would see them beyond the reach of any legal entity. And they actually looked into this seriously and tried to raise the money to do it. But as history now shows, the fact that they didn't succeed was actually a blessing. Because if they had followed this entirely centralised approach, there is little doubt that the Pirate Bay would exist today. It is far, far easier to hit a known entity in a known location than it is to find a ghost in the machine, which is what the Pirate Bay would ultimately become. Now, Nij, Swadom, and Sunday effectively sold the Pirate Bay to a vague, shadowy company known as Reservella, based somewhere in the Seychelles. Now, we do use the term sold pretty loosely because this has always been contested due to the absolute lack of any evidence at all of it actually happening. However, from that point onwards, the Pirate Bay moved to a sort of ghost protocol, becoming more mobile and flexible than it ever was in any previous incarnation, albeit with a few bumps on the way. Meanwhile, back in Sweden, the three men were ultimately convicted on April seventeenth, two 2009, almost three years after the initial shutdown had completely failed to kill the site in the first place. In fact, in a brazen act of total defiance, it later transpired that Neej had edited Pirate Bay code and fixed a site shutdown while actually sitting in court, an act that won him legendary status among fellow geeks and cyberpunks. Now, all three were sentenced to prison for one year and made to pay fines of several million dollars, which of course they promptly refused to pay. Then, to make their position clear on what they thought of the imposed prison sentence, they just as promptly ran away, successfully evading authorities for many of the following years. Now, of course, ultimately and one by one, they were caught and served their sentences, although the restitution they were ordered to pay remains unpaid to this day, at least as far as we know. Now, some say the men are still involved with the Pirate Bay even now, but they all deny this. However, it is clear that the site itself has continued to thrive without their direct input and continues to successfully serve tens if not hundreds of millions of users on a regular basis. Now, Understanding how they've managed to do this provides us with keen insight into just how hard it is to identify and close in on any decentralised project, even one as blatantly illegal as the Pirate Bay. After 2006, the Pirate Bay moved around a bit, first finding refuge temporarily in the Netherlands, but later setting up back in Stockholm, coming full circle. In 2014 another large raid shut it down again and this time it created an outage that looked like it might actually be permanent. But from this point onwards the Pirate Bay's modus operandi changed radically and within two months the site was back, now located in the cloud and maintained by remote and anonymous staffers. So trying to shut down the Pirate Bay now is next to impossible with the current jurisdictional and legal limitations that exist, mainly because these laws were never designed to handle such applications. Who enforces it, for example? Under what law? What happens if that law doesn't exist in the jurisdiction where the site is operating? What if a government doesn't want to comply with another one for political or financial reasons? Or what if it just doesn't care? So it's a political, legal and economic mess that is close to impossible to untangle. And the thing is, the current operators of the pirate pay know it. So if closing down an operation that has universal disdain among authorities pretty much everywhere on the planet is that hard, just how difficult would it be for something that is almost universally accepted, at least in terms of basic legality? Because the simple fact is that Bitcoin is entirely legal across the vast majority of the planet, even if some of those areas do have some limitations on use or ownership. Now, even in those very few areas, and it is only very few areas where Bitcoin is actually banned outright, the law is often hard to enforce, even within the jurisdiction. There are also some sovereign states who are very pro-Bitcoin and are campaigning for related businesses and services to base themselves there. The usual examples are Japan, Malta and Switzerland, but there are actually others. Now this does really create a total headache for any nation who wants to ban it completely because it's impossible to do it unless all the other nations comply completely. So, for example, you could pass legislation closing down all the mining facilities in your jurisdiction, although others located elsewhere, of course, will remain operational and the network actually would be entirely unaffected by your actions. You could do the same with exchanges, but you'd get the same result. Finally, of course, you could get really crazy and try and ban the entire internet, but which nation would want to see its citizens rejoin the dark ages despite a global payment system that everyone else is using anyway, well at least to some extent? Anyway, it's next to impossible to do with so many connection options that reside out of your jurisdiction. Consider communication satellites, for example. How would you stop people using those? Of course, some countries have still tried to ban it, but even then the Pirate Bay has a precedent that has provided an accurate template for what happens next. So in 2006, just after the first raid on its servers by Swedish police, traffic to the Pirate Bay almost doubled overnight as news of the site and its appeal to users spread far and wide since then each successive attempt to close it down has actually resulted in increased traffic at least according to the site's operators so it seems the more you try and take something away from the people the more the people want it is there really any trait more human than that Just last month, for example, Nigeria suddenly announced that it would clamp down on cryptocurrency users by disallowing any banking services to work with exchanges with little or no warning. Now, initially, the cryptocurrency community, which happens to be one of the largest in the world due to the weakness of the nation's currency, was stunned. But within days, workarounds involving neighbouring jurisdictions and peer-to-peer services began to appear and Bitcoin itself started trading at an enormous premium due to lack of liquidity, up to 46% in some cases according to reports from Coindesk. The point is, it's already clear that Nigeria's ban has not worked. It has only succeeded in driving trading underground or out of the country, possibly actually taking some of the very wealth that Nigeria's authorities are trying to protect with it. There's no clear date on this, of course, as yet it appears that demand for Bitcoin, though, has not decreased at all. In fact, it may even have increased as people scramble to secure whatever they can, urged on by the authorities apparent confirmation that the Nigerian currency is heading for further devaluation and that the economy itself is in serious trouble. But there is one rather unexpected thing that the pirate grade gives us a small glimpse of. That is how it may actually be possible to stop Bitcoin in its tracks, at least in theory. There has been really quite extensive research carried out in recent years indicating that providing content people are looking for in a certain way reduces the need or desire to illegally download it so consider for example having access to all the top rated tv shows recent movies perhaps an extensive library of older movies access to full box sets and lots of exclusive new content whenever you want it at your fingertips for just a few dollars a month you know like some form of i don't know let's call it an on-demand streaming service well Unsurprisingly, the rapid growth of services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus and actually many others appear to show that demand for pirated content actually falls in tandem with their growth, at least according to several reports such as one from YouGov in the UK and one from Digital Music News in the US. However, that's only what the headline numbers would have you believe. Because close examination of these reports shows that only certain types of download are reduced. Namely, and unsurprisingly perhaps, content that can be watched via streaming services. Now, it's also worth noting that whatever format digital content is provided and at whatever price, a certain and actually quite significant percentage of the population would actually continue to download illegally anyway because... Well, they can. So the only thing we can say for sure is that these services probably reduce the propensity for individuals to illegally download certain services. So if we extrapolate this, it seems logical that the better and more efficient the legal service is, the less likely it is that people would use services like the Pirate Bay. Perhaps even if they were really good, we'd stop using it altogether. And therein lies the biggest clue to putting a stop to Bitcoin. Since we now know and have proven really with this model, it absolutely cannot be done with regulation or legislation now or in any version of the near or medium future. There is only one other way governments could do it. And that is by offering something better. In other words, if you want to kill Bitcoin, you'd need to employ sound global monetary policy. Now, I might be a little bit cynical, but somehow I think we're safe for a while yet. Thanks for listening today. If you've got any comments or questions on this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jason A. Dean, or if you'd like to know more on the subject of Bitcoin and finance in general, then join me on Medium on the new address they've given me, which is jasonadean.medium.com. Don't forget the E at the end of Dean when you're typing that out, or you won't find me. Now, I promised you £10 worth of Bitcoin at the start of this podcast, and here are the details you need. All you need to do is open the Luno app and type in the code I'm going to give you. Now I should say, if you haven't verified your account yet, you should do that first, it only takes a minute. And you do that by going to Profile, Settings, Verification, and it's the usual mugshot and ID that you use on all banking apps these days, and it's usually processed within a couple of minutes. Once done, and of course you only have to do it once, you just go to the section called Rewards at the bottom of the screen, press the Enter a Code button and type in the following PDUK12X, that's Papa Delta Uniform Kilo One 2 X-Ray and, well, that's it. Your £10 in Bitcoin will be credited instantly. If you're in Europe, it'll be the equivalent of £10, so that's about €11 Euros, I think at the moment. You can use that just to play with the app and explore it. But of course, you can buy more Bitcoin easily once you're set up and go from there. Don't forget, you can now earn 4% interest on your crypto by moving it to the savings wallet built into the app, which is, of course, about 4% more than you can get in the bank right now. T's and C's apply when saving and you can check those out when you first transfer over. So I'll leave that with you and I'll see you next time on the Bitcoin and Global Finance Podcast.